teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. Thank you so much for salvation. Lord, we are so grateful. Thank you for those who uh, left uh, on Friday to go to Honduras. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Thank you for giving them a safe arrival there. Use them this week, Lord, as they seek to encourage the saints there to proclaim the gospel to the lost, Lord, to do VBS and other things that, Lord, you would bless their time there, that the church there would be just so encouraged. And, Lord, that you would use them to bring souls in your kingdom. And Lord, too, as we come to your word again, we know that without uh, your spirit illuminating us to understand and to apply it, we would would be blind to it. We thank you, Lord, for his work in us and just pray that we would understand, that we would apply, that we would not be distracted. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're talking about Veterans Day. It reminds me, a few summers ago, I visited a friend of mine who was uh, t- taking over command of the Marine Battalion, Marine Tank Battalion at 29 Palms, and we went and attended the uh, change of command ceremony. And after that, he gave us a tour of all of the vehicles, the tanks, and the uh, support vehicles, uh, things like that at the base. And it was very interesting, a lot of fun. And one vehicle in particular he was showing us was a, a mine detection vehicle that they had just come up with. This was uh, at the time of the war in Iraq, and, and also there were soldiers in Afghanistan. And he was showing us the various uh, vehicles there. And the one that they were, had put together very quickly was this vehicle to deal with, landside, with roadside landmines that uh, were taking out many vehicles and soldiers. And, and they did it quickly and put this thing together quickly because before that, guess how they were trying to detect mines? They had a soldier, a minesweeper out in front. And so, you know, I just was thinking about, as I was reading the text this morning, that, that, that whole time with my friend came to mind because I was thinking about what would the mentality be of the, the guy who had the minesweeper in front of the caravan. He'd be pretty focused, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd be very, very careful, very attentive, very sober, right? He, any misstep could cost him not only his own life, but the life of others who were depending on him. And that's the same tone, that attentiveness, that care, that focus, as we approach our text this morning that, that Paul has and the words he uses and the things that he talks about is that, that careful attention. And so I would ask as you would please stand with me as we read, as I read Ephesians five fifteen through 21, see what Paul has to say about the importance of giving careful attention. Ephesians 5, verse 15. Therefore... Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. So here we come upon the fifth and final walk command in chapters 4 to 6. You remember the first three chapters, Paul focused on our salvation, the redemption we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the last three, how we are to respond to that. And Paul structured those last three chapters with six different sections. Five of them are center around five specific commands of how we are to walk or to live. And the sixth and final section is a command to stand. And so in this section, the the last walk command that Paul gives, we've already seen the, the worthy walk is to walk in unity, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, to walk in purity, and here to walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom. And this last section, to walk in wisdom, is actually the largest one of these walk commands. It goes from 5.15 all the way through 6.9. 
And we're going to look at various things there. It, that walk in wisdom provides the foundation for how we're to live in our homes, in our community, in our jobs. And this morning we're going to give attention primarily to what Paul has to say about how we are to walk in wisdom. He gives four principles here, four points. One is to walk carefully. The other is to walk urgently. Thirdly, to walk willfully. And lastly, to walk spiritually with a capital S. We're going to cover the first three this morning, Lord willing, the fourth next Sunday. But the first point is to walk carefully. Paul says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Paul's tone here is one of seriousness, one of thoughtfulness. He uses two different words to communicate that tone. Two different words which convey, have the idea of being careful, being attentive. The first is the word blepo, which literally means to look or to see. But it has the idea of taking heed, carefully considering, carefully looking and watching. Paul put it at the beginning of the sentence and also put it in the imperative form in order to give us emphasis. To say, hey, hey, look, direct your focus on this. Pay careful attention to what I'm about to say. Then he adds another word that's often translated as careful. It's a word that has the idea of strictly adhering to a standard or conforming to one, to be precise, to be accurate, to give meticulous attention towards. It's, it's kind of like the care and the focus that you might give in pulling out a splinter. Right? What do you typically use for that? Tweezers or a needle, right? You don't get a pair of pliers out of the toolbox and try to wrench it out of there, do you? Unless you're my grandfather, who he would do something like that. Did I ever tell you about how he pulled his teeth? <laughs> Bottle of whiskey in one hand, pair of pliers in the other. I watched him do it. I won't tell you what he said after he pulled the tooth out, but I ain't paying no dentist to do this. Oh, man. Now, he might use pliers on a splinter, but, but most of us would not, right? We would take care and attention. We'd be very careful. And that's, that's the idea here is these words together stress this idea of being careful, of, of being attentive, conscientious, vigilant, cautious. It's that picture of the minesweeper walking out at point, being careful what he is doing, not goofing off, not distracted. He knows he's in a dangerous situation, right? He knows he's in perilous circumstances, and so his senses are at maximum. He walks circumspectly, which is how the King James translates this. Something I remember not doing one day as I was riding my bike to school, and I came barreling out of the driveway, and I'm looking at some cool car going by, and and the minute I turn around, bang, I hit a van parked in the street. And um, that got my attention. It was a painful lesson that I need to be paying attention in fact, my face was red, not just from the impact. There was somebody in the house watching me. So, But, you know, the wise person pays attention. That's the idea, the point Paul is trying to communicate here. He recognizes a situation. It's the wise person who knows the right thing to do and then does it. It's the wise person who, who doesn't respond haphazardly or, or rashly. Brings to mind the a poem that Alexander Pope wrote in 1709, where one of the lines there is, Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. We are to walk carefully, not as unwise people, but as wise. When you hear that word wisdom, some people may picture a, you know, an old man offering sagely advice or, or the guru at the top of the mountain who is um, speaking mysterious sayings or some Greek philosopher but that's not the idea here behind wisdom. The, the Greek idea is, is information, facts, logical conclusions. But Paul's speaking here of the Hebrew idea of wisdom. It is taking those facts, it is taking that information and applying it to life. Biblical wisdom is, is knowledge in action. It's a skill in living. It's understanding how to apply the scriptures in a given situation so that you'll respond in a way that God desires you to wisdom it requires knowledge but it doesn't stop there right you can be an extremely intelligent person but an unwise person or you can be an extremely simple person but be wise biblical knowledge does not automatically translate into right living does it an important question is well how do i get that wisdom how do i achieve it how do i obtain it and the answer to that i want you to turn to proverbs chapter one now, why do you think I'd have you turn to Proverbs if we're going to talk about wisdom? Right? It's the book of wisdom. 
Proverbs chapter 1. And, you know, when, when you hear and talk about, you know, I need some wisdom for this, you know, often the verse James 1.5 is quoted, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, right? The thing of it is that, is that it? Is that all that we need to do? We just ask the Lord, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. Please give me wisdom to know how to respond. And then I sit there and wait for heaven's wisdom ray to hit me. Is that what James is focusing on here? Is that what he's talking about? Well, yes, we do need to ask. (laughs) We do need to pray. Wisdom comes only from God, from nowhere else. But if that was it, I have this question. If all we needed to do was ask, and that was it, why did James keep writing after verse 5? Right? There's more instruction that, that we need. There's other things we need to do in addition to begging God for wisdom. Look at Proverbs 1 1. Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. What was the purpose of Proverbs as Solomon lays them out here? What was he wanting to communicate? Wisdom, right? Discernment, understanding, knowledge that could be applied. And see, this is where a lot of people miss it. They, it doesn't stop simply at asking God for wisdom. We also need to remember there is a means that God uses to answer that prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 1 of Proverbs. Skip down a few verses. Solomon says there, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. There's the ask part that James 1.5 talks about. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And again, as Solomon affirms here, wisdom comes only from God. From him comes only understanding and knowledge. But notice that, that, that he doesn't stop here with just asking. Notice that he doesn't just say, you know, cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, period. He adds more to it. He says, if you seek for her, if you search for her, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You see, he's made it accessible and, and we as his children need to cry out for wisdom. We need to beg God for it and we need to seek it. Notice verses 2 through 6. All the actions that are described here. Receive. Treasure. Make attentive. Incline. Cry for. Lift your voice. Seek. Search. Get the impression here. We need to work at it. We need to work at pursuing wisdom. We need to search for it as if we were digging for treasure. Any of you watch any of those documentaries? Uh, uh, Discovery Channel on uh, treasure hunters? I mean, some of those guys, the amount of time and effort and expense to look for something that often they don't even find, that's the picture Solomon says here. But, but we will find it. That's the difference. But we need to seek and search for it as if we were looking for an immense treasure. Wisdom says in Proverbs eight seventeen, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. God extends wisdom to those who go after it with a vengeance. So we need to pray. Don't stop at the prayer, though. That's where we start, but, but God then wants us to keep going. And He's provided wisdom for us where? His Word, right? This. Hold it up. This is where God... Hold it up means hold it up. Okay, yeah, there we go. Very good, all right? This is where God has given us Wisdom right there. To know how to walk circumspectly in wisdom comes through mining and digging in the scriptures. You know, as we come to God in prayer asking for wisdom, we need to come with dirty hands that have been digging and scraping and seeking that wisdom in his word. It comes through the consistent reading and and the studying of the scriptures and through listening to sermons, reading books that explain the word. It comes through prayerful meditation on the Bible. 
But before all this, there's one thing we have to remember. There's one vital criteria that stands as the foundation before being able to receive God's wisdom. Notice back in Proverbs 1.5. Solomon gives this curious statement. He says there in chapter 1 verse 5 that only the wise will acquire wisdom. He says it in this fashion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. A man of understanding will acquire wisdom. Now that seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Isn't that we need the information from God before we could be considered being wise as we apply it? But see, Solomon is pointing something out here that's very important. Verse 7 is the answer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Beginning here doesn't mean in time, but in importance. The chief thing, the principal thing. Solomon's saying here that the foundation at arriving and being able to receive wisdom, the wise person is the one who fears God. Proverbs 9.10 says the same thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? You can't receive God's wisdom until you understand and get this. Be like delivering, say you come home today and there's a nice car in your driveway. I have this fixation on vehicles this morning, sorry. But you've got this nice, beautiful car in your driveway. It's perfect color. It's the very model that you've been wanting to have for so long. The problem is there's no keys, That thing is useless without the keys, isn't it? Without the keys, the gift doesn't help you. And it's the same way here. Without the fear of the Lord, the rest of the Proverbs, the rest of the Scriptures where we get God's wisdom are useless. Without that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have the capacity to understand and apply God's Word in a manner that would honor Him. We can only obtain His wisdom if we have a relationship with Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty four says, To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then just a few verses later in verse 30, Paul says, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, the, the fear of the Lord, the, the capacity to gain His wisdom, to obtain it, to apply the truth of His Word to our lives in a manner that would honor Him, it begins with knowing Jesus. That's where it starts, being forgiven of your sins, having the Holy Spirit change your heart, transform you, and then give you the capacity not only to understand His Word, but also to apply it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so many people, when they get caught up in trials or circumstances or difficulties, and they pick up a book about the Bible, or they read from Proverbs, or they ask somebody familiar with the Bible and try to get the information on how to deal with the circumstance, they're missing the bigger problem. And that is where are they at with the Lord? Because it's so important that we recognize that first our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the, His death on the cross and His resurrection providing forgiveness for sins and eternal life. That's where wisdom begins. That's the truly wise man. You first need to know the all-wise Savior. That's where it starts. And when you get saved, then you can understand. 1 Corinthians 2.16, just a few verses later, Paul said this, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So walking carefully in wisdom for believers takes place when we fervently ask him and we diligently and earnestly dig for it in his word. And not only do we need to walk carefully, Ephesians 5.16 also notes that we need to walk urgently. Paul says they're making the most of your time, or literally redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Making the most comes from a word that means to, to redeem, to buy back. It's the same phrase, you remember, in Daniel chapter 1, when Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in Daniel 1 and 2, when he had this dream, and he had asked that the uh, wise men there would interpret the dream, say, tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it means. And what did the wise men do? You remember? Uh, um, give us some idea. What, what was part of your dream? You know, give it, right? And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, you're trying to buy time. It's the same idea, same phrase. They were, they were trying to redeem time so they could figure it out. Other translations of verse 16 here help give the sense. The Net Bible says, take advantage of every opportunity. The ESV says, make the best use of time. New King James says, redeeming the time. It's, it's this idea of looking for a bargain. 
You know, it's the, uh, there's some of us I know here who who's diligently look through coupons and through the newspapers, through the Internet, looking for that deal, right? That diligent seeking and, and, and trying to, to find that bargain. It's especially going to be taking place here coming soon on Black Friday, right? There are a lot of people out looking for bargains that day. So much so, it gets violent. Today, I'm going to stay home. <laughs> but that's, a, you know, in a sense, we need to have that same intensity, that, that same vigilance in regards to time. There's two Greek words that refer to time. One is the word chronos. It's the word we get chronology from. It's the idea of a sequence of events or a specific event or time, like what time is it from a clock or a calendar. And then there's another word, that's the word kairos, which focuses on a period of time, an era or an opportunity. Kairos is the word that Paul uses here. So this idea is it's to, to buy up or take advantage of the opportunity, you have to use it wisely to live how God would want you to live, to respond in a gospel, to the gospel in a worthy manner. Galatians 6, 9, Paul said, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, kairos, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I mean, what would you think of a guy who had a stack of money and he throws it in the fire? Or a pile of jewels and he chucks it over a cliff. Or the lottery ticket and he lets it go out the window. That guy'd be a fool, right? Well, how much more foolish to throw away an hour or a day. But we still do it, don't we? We still do it. We are prone to laziness or distraction or we develop bad habits or we don't set goals or we get caught up in some sinful activity that that keeps us from redeeming the time. One man said the common complaint is we want time, but the truth is we do not so much want it as waste it. And you know, many people just exist. They they let things happen to them and around them, and they don't think about how they're using their time. And my question to us this morning would be, how about you? What do you do with your time? Do you have a plan? Are you making the most of it? Are you redeeming it, buying it up, taking advantage of it for God's work, investing it in eternal things? In fact, I want to, let me show you a, a statue carved by the Greek sculptor Lysippos. It's made about 300 years before Christ. The, uh, the shorts are a 21st century edition. <laughs> There's, we have a budding sculptor in, uh, uh, here at church, Megan, uh, who has uh, worked on that for me. But Lysippos, I know, it's pretty good. You wouldn't want to see... Anyway, I won't go there. Okay, so Lysipos, he made this statue minus the shorts. And its statue's name is Kairos, or Opportunity. And below it, I didn't put it here, but he wrote an inscription out talking about opportunity. And it's very insightful. I want to read it to you. Who are you, Kairos, who subdues all things? Why do you stand on tiptoe? I'm ever running. Keep in mind, this name is Opportunity. Why do you have a pair of wings on your feet? I fly with the wind. And why does your hair hang over your face? For him who wants to meet me to take me by the forelock. And why in heaven's name is the back of your head bald? Because none whom I have once raced by on my winged feet can now, though he wishes it sorely, take hold of me from behind. Pretty insightful. It's a picture of opportunity that that rushes by us like the wind. And if we miss it when it's here and don't grab it when we can, it's like trying to grab the back of a bald man's head as it goes by. People regretted missed opportunities 2,500 years ago, just like we do today. Isn't that why we have this New Year's tradition, uh, this tradition called New Year's resolutions? where we now decide there's an area in our life we want to work at, she'll focus on, and we're determined to make the most of the opportunity to make our time profitable in that area. But then also we have another tradition here in our culture, and that's called the breaking of New Year's resolutions. In fact, one study I looked at said one in three people uh, don't follow through with their New Year's resolution within one month. And that one in ten actually, or only one in ten keep it for a full year. I guess... Most of us are part of the other nine. But, you know, after a short period of time, what happens, right? 
we stop the exercise class or pitch the diet or we drop the learning that new skill we'd committed to do or, or our quiet time becomes less frequent or all the scriptures we had planned and resolved to memorize, we, we quit doing that or we, we just give up on whatever the resolution was. And why is that? Especially those ones that are related to important spiritual matters. Why, why do we give up? Why don't we have the determination to stick with it? Why do people not make a more productive use for, the, uh, for their time? Well, the problem isn't the resolution itself. The problem is the motivation. We need to have the right motivation. The more compelling the motivation, the more likely we will keep the resolution, right? I mean, if somebody offered me a million bucks to lose 25 pounds this year, guess what, folks? I'm starting today. No birthday cake, right? If they offer me a million dollars to read four books a month, guess what, folks? I'm reading. Right? It's the, the motivation. And sadly, I would think, you know, money sometimes more motivating to us than other things. But we often don't make the most of the opportunity or redeem the time that we are given for the glory of God because we don't have the right motivation, either we don't know it or we don't remind ourselves of it. And so I want to give you a couple of motivations in Scripture that will help, or biblical motivations, to move you and to move me to make the most of the opportunity. One of them is here in Ephesians 5, 16, which we'll look at in a minute. But before that, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We'll look at a motivation that Moses gives. In this psalm, it's interesting, Moses makes a connection between wisdom and time, just as Paul does in our text. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm uh, that is in the Psalter. It was written by Moses. It's the only one we have in the book of Psalms from him. He written other psalms but, or spoken them, but they are elsewhere in the, the Old Testament. But here I want us to look at just verse 10 through 12 in Psalm 90. Moses says, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow. For soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days that we may present to you or that we may bring a heart of wisdom. You see the connection here that Moses makes between time and wisdom? A key motivation that Moses gives here and to use our time wisely is to realize we don't have much of it. Moses asked God to impress upon us that that we don't last forever. And again, think about who's writing this. And how many people that Moses watched in the wilderness drop dead. Many of them before their 70th birthday. And Moses talks about that here. And, you know, we've had many, many funerals here in this church. We've lost many loved ones in our body. Some of them made it to 90 years old. But some did not even make it past five years old. And we have many in between. Time is short. And Moses says, praise to God that God would would help us to understand, to to grasp, to to number our days so that we would understand the brevity of our lives. Psalm 39.4, David said the same thing. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Behold, you've made my days as handbreadths. My lifetime is nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Now, why do these guys direct our attention to this? Do they want us to get depressed? They want us to get discouraged? Where Moses and, and David moping here saying, you know, we just don't have that much time. Why bother with anything? We're going to die someday, probably sooner than we think. No, that's actually the opposite. These men are encouraging us and asking God to help us understand just how brief our lives is so we'd be moved to action in the time that we have. So that we would take advantage of this moment, this hour, this day that we've been given. So that we would understand and then present, it says here, present or bring a heart of wisdom. I like how the Net Bible reads, Teach us to consider our mortality so that we might live wisely. Or in Paul's words, make the most of the opportunity. Live with purpose, right? For you don't know how much time you have. And you know what? How many times have we heard this? Is this new information to anybody? I don't think so, right? We've heard this many times. You don't know how many days you have. You don't know how much time God has given you. And yet, we seem to keep getting sucked into things, thinking that we have all the time in the world. That we'll get to the important stuff later. 
But brothers and sisters, just because you may not have a life-threatening illness now, it doesn't mean you're going to live another 50 years. Don't be fooled into thinking or fooled into living as if you have all the time that you need. Some people will say, right, you never know. You might be hit by a bus. And, you know, I don't say that flippantly anymore because we, we lost a dear woman from our church just a few years ago when she was on her way to work crossing a street and she got hit and killed by a bus. It can happen. We can die in any manner, any form, at any time. And again, the point going here isn't so that we would be discouraged or depressed or just say, forget it, I'm going to stay in bed and, you know, and just watch TV and eat. That's, that's not it at all. It's that, you know what, God has given you time and He's given you life and He's given you breath. It's short and you don't know how much of it you have. So get moving. That's a call to action. A call to make the most of that time that we have been given. Do you number your days? When you wake up in the morning, what do you start thinking about? You know, it would be a great practice to, to first thank the Lord for that night's rest and then thank Him for giving you life for that day and then praying to the Lord and asking Him, Lord, help me to make the most of the hours that you've given me today while I have them. Many of you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, right? At the age of 19, 19 and 20 years old, he made 70 resolutions as a young man. Let me read two of them to you. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. 19 years old. How would you, the way you spend your time, look if, if those were two resolutions you had committed to your life? So one motivation to making the most of the opportunity is to remind ourselves that the life is short, that, the, that we have a brief life. Our life is a vapor. Let's go back to Ephesians 5.16 where we'll see a second motivation that Paul gives. He says, making the most of your time because or, or for or due to the fact that the days are evil. We're to take advantage of every opportunity because wickedness abounds around us. And I would, again, think of it. Now, how, how can this serve as a motivation? To redeem the time to, hey, there's wickedness and sin all out there. It's all around us. The days are evil. We live in a a wicked age. So make the most of the opportunity. So what's the connection? What's Paul getting at here? Well, remember the emphasis back in verse 15 on, on being aware. Remember being careful, being attentive to what is going on. Paul's bringing that same point here, but more directly. He's saying, you know what? We need to understand something. That, that we live in evil days. That we live in a time period where there's war and evil that's getting the upper hand. Where families lay shipwreck and, and people are getting sucked into all kinds of sinful pits. Many going to hell. We need to be reminded of the fact that the more I'm studying the book of Ephesians, the more it's making sense to me why Paul ends his letter saying, Finally, you know what the last subject is? The last topic that Paul deals with? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against who? Spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, rulers and authorities, demons, Satan. You know these verses. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is hanging out in a doghouse, going to sleep and eating bonbons. Is that what he's doing? Kicking back? Enjoying his time? Relaxing? No, what does the verse say? He is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to eat. Job 1.7, when Satan appears before God and God asks him the question for our benefit and understanding, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. That is a scary thought. The, the verb tense there of roaming around is, or walking around is this idea of going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It's like a person looking for something that they've lost in a room and they're pacing everywhere, frantically trying to find it, going around and around and around. That's what Satan is doing. He's going around and around and around on this earth looking for somebody to eat. 
That, my friends, is a sobering thought. We're in a dangerous land. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 2, that, the, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Again, we are like the minesweeper in front of the caravan. Brothers and sisters, are you looking? Are you alert? Are you attentive? Are you using your time with this in mind? This is the motivation here. Don't, don't be like the minesweeper who's not paying attention to what's going on. And he's acting as if there's no danger. And he's, he's not watching. He's not being careful. Because the times we live in are evil. Sin is rampant. Satan is free to roam back and forth and back and forth. Injustice, wickedness, murder, violence, abortion, rape, theft, greed, blasphemy, evolution, godless psychology. And it goes on and on. That's our world. And to waste time when the world is going to hell is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. I mean, picture, you know, when I was on the, the <clears throat> my friend was showing me the tour and he, he let us go into one of the tanks. They were off. He let us go in and we're sitting in there and he's explaining all the various uh, responsibilities of the soldiers involved. And just imagine if, if uh, these soldiers are out in a battle in this tank and the guy that's supposed to be putting ordnance into the, into the gun is sitting there playing on his iPad, goofing off. We need to be attentive. We must walk urgently. We must be on the alert. We, we must make an impact for the gospel in a dark world. Now, does this mean we're to be paranoid zealots and we're not supposed to enjoy life at all? Oh, no. Ecclesiastes, a, a book that talks about the need to be sober in life, also says enjoy the blessings God's given you, that they are meant to be enjoyed. But we have to be careful that those blessings don't become a distraction. That the need for rest doesn't turn into laziness. That the, the need for food doesn't turn into gluttony. That the, the need or desire for relationships does not turn into immorality. The issue is, is our mindset. Do we, are we reminding ourselves that the days are evil? Do you ask yourself, again, how am I going to use my time today knowing that I'm in a war? This isn't peacetime this is war. Do you, are you living for now? Are you trying to accumulate things that will bring comfort, that you can relax and have peace and joy in this life? And again, it's not wrong to want to experience God's blessings. But we have a more important mission. And that is to redeem the time because the days are evil. Because if I don't spend the time for matters of eternity, there are those around me that will perish in the battle because I wasn't paying attention, because I was playing on my iPad. Let that not be us. Let us remind ourselves every day. I don't have many days. And the days I do have, I'm living in a world that Satan is ruling. And God has placed me here to make a difference. You know, Jesus never wasted a moment. Even while he was dying on the cross, not only was he sacrificing for our sins, but remember he had a conversation with somebody, didn't he? The guy next to him. All that was Jesus was going through, he still made the most of the opportunity and led this man who was once a mocker to become a child of God. While on the cross, he made the most of the opportunity and asked the Father to forgive his murderers. While on the cross, he redeemed the time and made sure that his mother would be taken care of. When Paul sat in prison because of unjust arrests, he did not mope, but he wrote. He wrote the epistle we have in our hands. Praise God he made the most of the opportunity. He wrote other epistles. One time in prison he sang hymns. And often as he was in chains walking along, he shared the gospel with those who were walking with him, with the guards. John Bunyan was taken from his wife and children for 12 years because he wouldn't stop teaching the Bible. But while in prison, as, as sad and discouraged as he was, he didn't... Stay there. He didn't stay lamenting his terrible situation, but he made the most of the opportunity and he wrote the most popular Christian book in history next to the Bible. What did he write, John Bunyan? Pilgrim's Progress. Jim Elliott prepared for 10 years to evangelize an unreached tribe in Ecuador and they killed him the day he landed on the beach. It's the same man who said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. 
And his wife, Elizabeth, ended up carrying on the ministry to those same people later. And many came to Christ. You know, these, these men were aware that the days were evil. They, they knew that their time was limited. And again, I would ask all of us to consider, what, what consumes your thoughts? What, what is it that you think about? What fills your calendar? What do you do with this interesting concept we have called free time? What do you do with that? How do you use it? Again, there's, it's not a problem to rest. We need that. But for the purpose of making the most of the opportunities that God gives us, right? Think of ways to remind yourself of the battle around you. Think of ways to remind yourself of the brevity of life. I would encourage you simply to memorize Psalm 90 verse 12 and Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 as a start. And then as, again, as you're waking up in the morning thanking God for the night's rest and thanking Him for giving you life that day, that the next thing you do is recite those verses to yourself. And then ask, Lord, how may I use my time effectively for you today? How can I redeem the time that you've been given, that you've given to me? So we walk in wisdom by walking carefully and walking urgently. There's a third principle, and I'm not done. It's to walk willfully. To walk willfully. Look at verse 17, chapter 5 of Ephesians. Paul says, So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here Paul is basically saying what he said in verse 15, but a different way. He says, So then, don't be foolish, but know God's will. Again, foolish here isn't the picture of someone being silly or or, uh, doing something stupid or joking around. A fool in Scripture was a much more serious condition. David talked about the fool in Psalm 14, 1, right? He said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. That doesn't mean that just the fool denies the existence of God. The fool lives his life as if God doesn't exist. He may believe in God or believe there is a God, but he lives as if there's not one. Or Proverbs 12, 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Not only does he disbelieve God, he only believes himself. Or Proverbs 1.7, we read that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right? A fool has no interest in knowing what God wants. When his word, when God's word is given to him, he refuses even to listen. Proverbs 10.23 says, doing wickedness is like sport to a fool. A fool is willfully rebellious. And I, you know what, it's just sobering to me to think about Paul gives this instruction for us not to become foolish to the body of Christ. To the church. He says, don't be that way. Don't become that way. Don't become as one who acts as if there is no God. Don't become as one who, who doing sport of uh, wickedness is a sport to you. Don't become as one who thinks what everything is right in your own eyes. That he's telling believers that. That says we're vulnerable to this if we're not careful. And Paul gives us the answer and how we can avoid becoming foolish, avoid becoming fools, and that is simply to know the will of God, to understand the will of the Lord, as he says. The word understand here originally had the idea or, or meant to, when two rivers were joining or uniting together. I think the, the idea here of understand is that we're taking knowledge or information and connecting it to action. That we, that we understand, that we have insight, that we have a grasp upon. Paul's saying here to resist becoming foolish, we're to grasp the will of the Lord. It's a contrast that he's setting up here. If we are being foolish, we're being foolish, we're being ignorant when we don't know the will of the Lord. The will here is simply the word thelma or or wish, want, desire. What does God wish for? What does he want? What does he desire? And I don't think he's talking about here our individual, uh, you know, like God's individual will for me. Like, does God will for me? What's God's will regarding this job? Or what is his will regarding moving? Or whether or not I should do this or that activity? The idea here is more the general sense. What is God's will for us as believers? What does God wish or want for the world? And just how do we find that out? How do we know what God wants? How can we know the will of God? I already gave this answer earlier. This time, listen, hold up your Bibles. Right? He's given it to us already. He's given us His will. I want to share with you briefly five explicit passages, five passages which communicate the will of God explicitly. The first is given in 1 Timothy 2.3. It is the will of God that you be saved. 
It's the will of God that you be saved. That's been the the thrust that Paul has described here in Ephesians. In chapter 1, three different times, he talks about the will of God in reference to his plan of redemption, his salvation. 1 Timothy 2.3 says this, This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God and Savior, who desires, it's the same word there, thelo, who wishes or wills all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know what? God wants you to be saved. That may seem simple, but God wants you to come to repentance. He's not against that. 2 Peter 3, 9, that says this, He's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So if, if any of you have doubts that, you know, God doesn't really want me, He doesn't desire to be my child, I've committed too many sins to be forgiven by Him. He's too holy for me. I'm not holy at all. He doesn't want me. You know, these verses here give you the answer. God does want you to be saved. He doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to suffer an eternity in hell. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, and I talk to people and they, they bring up these things. And they say, well, God, God wouldn't save me. He doesn't want to save me. I'm, I'm not elect. Well, if you find yourself in hell, it's on you and not him because he wants you to be saved. Secondly, it is the will of God that you submit to authority. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. 1 Peter 2, 13. Peter says, Submit to yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, explicitly, the will of God is that we are submissive to those in authority over us. Thirdly, it is the will of God that you be sexually pure. We talked about this in Ephesians 5 earlier, chapter verses 3 to 14. First Thessalonians 4, 3 says it very plainly, very direct. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Again, a direct statement. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Fourthly, it is God's will that you be continually joyful, prayerful, and thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, I love this passage. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Isn't that neat? God wants us to be full of joy all the time. God wants us to be talking and speaking with Him incessantly, reverently, but incessantly. God wants us to be ever thankful and grateful. He says here, this is the will of God. And fifthly, it is the will of God that you suffer for Christ. 1 Peter 3.17 says, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And then in 4.19 he says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust Trust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. A lot more could be said about this here. But if we are suffering for doing what is right, if we are suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is God's will. That is what he desires. Jesus is honored when we suffer for him. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so, in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So these five passages tell us that that suffering, salvation, submission, sexual purity, ceaseless joy, prayer, and gratitude, these are all explicitly given to us as the will of God. And you know, if you think about it, if if you... do know, if you want to know God's will, maybe you know, going back to that idea, what, what is God's will for me in this decision I need to make? Should I go to that college? Should I take that job? Should I marry this person? You know, if, if you want to understand or know where God wants you to do in those situations, first follow the ones where he's clearly and explicitly told you what he wants to do. Let's start with what's direct and explicit. And then think we'll have better direction on the other things, what's indirect 
Because if you aren't seeking to follow the will of God and what he has explicitly said for you to do, then how can you expect to be within his will in areas that are outside of Scripture? You know, over the years, I've had many people come to me and, and ask, you know, they're dating somebody and they're, they're wondering, if, I'm just trying to know if it's God's will that I should marry this person. And so usually I'll, I'll take them through these passages and I'll, I'll stop a little bit on 1 Thessalonians 4 and I'll, I'll ask them if they've been pure. And if they haven't, then I ask them this, well, how can you know if, if you're in God's will and marrying this person if you aren't in his will and being pure with them? Why would God give you any further insight into what he wants if you aren't obeying what he's already plainly said? Or let's say you're looking or considering or wondering if you should take another job somewhere else. Well, my question would be to you, are you, you being submissive in the one you're at? Are you obeying the will of God in your current circumstance? Because if you aren't, why would God give you any impression or idea or, or direction as to what your will, his will would be for you otherwise in looking for another job? Be faithful to follow God's will in the clear areas, and I think you'll be going along with His will in the unclear ones. Does that make sense? And following the will of God isn't easy. I don't mean to communicate this is a no-brainer. Just, you know, do these passages and we're done. You'll be fine. You know, walking carefully is not easy. Walking urgently is not a simple thing to do. They are difficult. And in our own strength, really, we can't do these things. It's impossible, really. We can't do them. We need help, right? Amen? We need help. Well, that's where Paul turns. He turns to the help, capital H, in verse 18. That's where he next turns his attention. And that is where we will turn our attention next week. So let's come back together and we'll look at the fourth principle that Paul gives. But with that, let me go to the Lord in prayer now and ask Him for His help that we may walk in wisdom. Father, much, much to think about, Lord. We, we want to walk wisely. We don't want to become foolish. Lord, you've given us your will explicitly in these texts. You've told us directly what you want us to be focused on and doing. Lord, enable us to pursue those things. And, and also, Lord, help us to walk carefully and urgently in wisdom and glean from your word the wisdom you've given us there. Lord, to beg you for it, to fervently ask for it, and then, God, to diligently seek it. Lord, let us not be passive Christians, but, but active, Lord, to, to pursue your word, to pursue the things you have shown us. Lord, to seek wisdom with all our heart. Lord, and to desire your will above all else so that we may use our time wisely, so that we may make the most of the opportunity. Let us be, Lord, a a body of believers that redeems the time, that recognizes the days we live in and the time that we have is short. Thank you, Lord, for your exhortation from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.